In the Simpsons universe, Springfield is a town that has just about everything. So, it only makes sense that it has everything you need to learn about economics. You're listening to Upset Patterns. Here to talk with us more about finding new ways to connect the ideas of economics to everyday life is Joshua Hall, an associate professor of economics at West Virginia University and editor of the upcoming book, Homer Economicus, The Simpsons and Economics. Joshua, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Will. Your book is called Homer Economicus. Where does this title come from and what inspired you to put the book together? I The, the title comes from, it's a play on the the phrase homo economicus, which typically is thought to mean economic man, although Deirdre McCloskey put the point out it's, it's more economic person. It, it started when I was, my first job uh, teaching was as an adjunct at Capital University, a small liberal arts school, uh, most known for its conservatory in Columbus, Ohio. And I was showing students clips off the DVDs of, of The Simpsons, and I thought it was just a clever way of of talking about, well, this isn't homo economicus, this is homer economicus. And it just kind of mulled around in my head and I happened to mention it to Deirdre McCloskey, who was in giving a talk. And she said, young man with a title like that, it deserves a book. And so this was maybe early 2000. And so, you know, this shows about academia. It takes a while for these things to come to fruition. Can you give a basic rundown of, of what the book entails and how it tries to connect the Simpsons and economic ideas? Sure thing. I mean, I think that's a great uh, idea because it could mean many things to many people. You know, if you, if you ask 10 economists, how would you go about approaching this book? Uh, many people think it's a, it's a sole authored book. And, you know, while that was one way I could have I could have done it. I was really very interested in how other people might approach various topics. And so to me, a lot of the fun of doing a project like this is not only reaching new people who might not otherwise be exposed to economics, but also getting to be the first person to read a lot of other authors' takes on on how would we use The Simpsons to teach money or law and economics, for example. And so what I did was I emailed, sent out a call for papers to a bunch of economists, said, hey, I'd like to put this book together. Here's what I was thinking. I'm thinking, well, let's try to mirror, at least for part of it, a principles of micro book. What are the things in The Simpsons that illustrate scarcity, illustrate gains from exchange, both good and bad, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be a, a, a great example of gains from exchange. It be an example of not utilizing gains from exchange. The second half of the book focuses on what I would call applied micro topics. There's specific issues or specific industries or specific topics that will hopefully after the student has their appetite you know, wedded for economics, it can show how you can take economics and apply it to health or apply it to a topic like prohibition or casino gambling. Do you see students responding well to this strategy? Are they more engaged and 
maybe most importantly, do you think that they come away understanding the fundamental concepts uh, better because of it? I, I think uh, that's a great question, and, and I haven't done any sort of testing, but my general theory of education is much like Dennis Miller's, the comedian's theory of comedy. And Dennis Miller, he, I once saw an interview with him and he said, you know, they asked him, why does he tell jokes that have like three parts and one's very general, one's covered, you know, covers maybe half the audience. And then he, he throws in, you know, these obscure references. An example would be talking about how little attention the TSA agents are playing or are paying at the airport. But he'll say, well, you know, the guy looking at the x-ray has the attention span of Boo Radley. Now, if you don't know that that's a To Kill a Mockingbird reference, you're probably not going to laugh as hard as the person who does remember it. But, you know, he points out, as Miller points out, this is, look, if I hit a different person with that different 1% each time, those people are going to keep coming back because they're going to remember that particular joke. And I like to not just focus, it's not about The Simpsons or about Game of Thrones or whatever thing you use. It's a, it's a variety of different things to get students to see that economics explains the world around us. It has something unique among the social sciences, or I would always say unique among, it has something to, it has real value added, just as sociology or anthropology might have. But it's a way of looking at the world. And for some students, they might be really intrigued by The Simpsons. Others might be intrigued by the supply and demand graphs we draw. But I've had a lot of students really, it, 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 it resonates with them and enough where they get excited and come out, you know, come back and, hey, I saw this episode. Would you say this is an example of the prisoner's dilemma? And when you can do that, when you can engage students in that type of conversation, then you might have a chance to really get them to be able to apply it into other areas. And I think think you made a pretty good point in the preface of your book when you say there's a good chance that the student, most of the students who take an introductory economics course will not take another one again. And maybe that's partially the fault of economists for not making it interesting enough, but also it, it, it shows an opportunity to to be this situation where, you know, you have this one year, rather than prepare them to be an academic economist, get them to think like an economist in the year that you might have them. Uh, the, the more positive way to explain, to think about this, I think, because I'm not going to take an empirical, I'm not going to come down either way on whether we have few people majoring in economics because we're poor economic teachers, or we could do better. Certainly we could do better. But I, I like to think the reason why it's in the general education curriculum and it's an input into many other courses. So I used to teach at Beloit College, and there were econ courses that were part of international relations, and they satisfied requirements in political science. They satisfied requirements in environmental studies, in women and gender studies. So the reason why econ spreads out through the curriculum is it has something to offer. And instead of using that opportunity, that, that one course you have with students to try to, to, to turn them into carbon copies yourself, you try to impart some basic lessons 
that they then can take with them back to their disciplines uh, or just back to their life as a citizen that that will stay with them, right? Demand curves always slope downward. And, you know, um, uh, life is full of trade-offs, right? Uh, I love, I constantly repeat Thomas Sowell's phrase that, you know, there are no solutions. There's only trade-offs. Uh, now, that's a little bit pessimistic, but I do think that, Part of what we're trying to do in a principles class is try to say, compared to what, uh, and highlight all the different trade-offs that might exist. What are some of your favorite illustrations of economics in The Simpsons that are mentioned in the book? Just to name a few to give the listeners a little bit of an idea of the connections you make. Well, one of the best, this is to me, it's my ask, why was I happy that I had to choose the the uh, route of an edited book. The chapter I would choose was chapter four, which is on money. And it's written by my colleague. He was my colleague then. This was several years ago. And I think he was still at the University of Mississippi. And now we just happen to both be on the faculty at West Virginia University, but it's by Andrew Young. And Andy starts with a quote from Milhouse. And Milhouse, uh, the quote is, he says, I can't go to Juvie they use guys like me for currency in juvie. And from that quote, he asks, well, what does it mean to be currency? And can we say that Millhouse has, which properties of currency does Millhouse have or does not have? Yeah, this, this is quite an in-depth, uh, yeah, look at a Millhouse quote. I mean, Millhouse is full of wisdom. It's just great to, to really think about his, his thoughts. Yeah, in some ways it's true. I mean, it, it's true, but then you can think about, well, is Milhouse divisible, <laughs> right? Can he really function as a medium of exchange? And then you can talk about, well, certainly there are currencies used in prisons. There is no one unique currency. I ask my students every semester, okay, Milhouse can't be used in currency. What is used in, as currency in prisons? And somebody will say, well, cigarettes. I say, well, many's you know, prisons are not smoking now. What's, what, what's replaced that? And they said, well, cigarettes are still smuggled in. Well, okay, then maybe they are, but surely other things have replaced, uh, replaced it. And somebody says, well, you know, maybe they are able to hide money or whatever. And I said, well, what sort of properties would you want? And then I present some, some stories. And, you know, it really depends on the state. It really depends on what sort of things are offered in the commissary in the state prisons in Florida, for example, I've seen articles that suggest that it's honey buns, like those sugar donut things, because they last forever and they have use value as well as exchange value. And in other prisons, it, it might be other things that are sold in the commissary. I think in all of these cases, it's, it's, I think this highlights a different part, the advantage of using the Simpsons, or any sort of, but the Simpsons in particular, is oftentimes with economics, when you're getting them to apply it, it's applying to the real world. And with students, it gets entangled with emotions and the context and the circumstance, and they can't set themselves back and say, under try to understand everybody's motives and incentives. And somehow when you, you use an animated show where the people aren't real, things which are really uncomfortable become fine. A student who can't understand why we should 
sell, maybe, maybe be allowed to sell our organs can better understand the consequences of organ shortages and donations when it's Grandpa Simpson. And, and I think that's a really, can be a really important part of using The Simpsons as the animated show is it's, it, it distances the student from, you know, what can be a really important real world consequence. It basically becomes a bridge uh, emotionally to the real world. I guess it also, just some people don't deal well, as well with abstract ideas when you're just looking at curves on a graph or these ideas, you know, it's it's one thing to say life is full of trade-offs. It's another to give an example that people can maybe sort of digest easier, and especially when it's a show like The Simpsons that many people have watched, not all. It's just another way to, I guess, understand the real-world application of the ideas. Yeah, I think one of the, well, I can't remember where she says this, but uh, McCloskey in one of her many writings talks about, yeah, Sergio McCloskey says, uh, we spend most of our time in class, we draw something on the board, we start in equilibrium, and we move to equilibrium, but really what we spend time in class doing is explaining, especially in a principles class, explaining the movement between those equilibrium. How exactly is it once a price control is put in a place, you know, that we we end up at the result uh, where we have, you know, persistent uh, shortages, right? Uh, and how do people adjust? And stories, whether The Simpsons or reading classical literature, they provide that context for the adjustment. And that's what makes somebody who's just good at manipulating graphs. And believe me, many students are not good at manipulating graphs. And that's true whether it's economics or physics or whatever it might, you know, they, they utilize a lot of graphs. But the, someone who really has deep economic understanding is they, my, my former colleague at Beloit College called it, she says, you need to have economic imagination. And she was taking that from a, a famous um, sociologist who, who used sociolo sociological imagination. But, but she says, look, we have to put ourselves in people's shoes. If you think about thinking on the margin, there's some marginal person out there. So if you know, a student might put, think of themselves as a landlord and a landlord facing a rent control imposed upon their apartment, and they might say, well, no matter what happened to my rate of return, I'm not going to start skimping on maintenance. But the question is, is everyone like you? And part about the economic way of thinking is saying many people have many different motivations. Can we imagine that there's somebody out there for whom when the rate of return falls, that they're going to start saying, where can I save money? Well, I'll save it on maintenance. And how will I save it? And then can we go out in the world and can we see evidence of that? To me, I think that's a real value of using popular culture and any type of stories because you can find these nuggets that illustrate those motivations, even if the students don't hold those. I have to point out one of one of my favorite examples is in the Mr. Plow episode. And I think to a lot of people not familiar with economics, profits can be this double-edged sword of sorts where if a big company has two too big of profits, they're sort of seen like they're exploiting the consumer in some way. 
On the other hand, if they don't have any profits and need a bailout, that's also bad, so they can't kind of win. But profits and economics is a valuable signal to competitors. So in the Mr. Plow episode, Homer makes this plow business, snow plow business, is doing very well, making a lot of money, and as the only one in the market is very successful, gets a key to the city. But of course, that success does what? And what does it show in typical economic marketplaces? Well, as I as I, I have many pet peeves, or at least things I try to hammer home, but uh, what, that this is one of them. And I say, well, look, profits are a sign what? Sign that, hey, this person's doing something right. They're combining resources in a way that provides value to the customer such that people are willing to turn over more money for the product than the cost of the resources that you brought together to provide the product. And so that means you're creating value for society. And that profit signal says, hey, I need to do more of that. And so we get more of this thing that's providing value to society. So what happens in the Simpsons episode Mr. Plow is Barney comes into the market. Now, you show the you show the some of the downsides of competition. If I re- recall correctly, Barney, you know, shoots out the tires to, of Homer in that episode. He's not always respecting Homer's property rights, but I think it does illustrate like this basic idea is every day in the marketplace we wake up, we owe customers owe us nothing. We owe customers nothing. If you think about the difference between, you know, the, I, I, do, I talk to my students about zoning and we would, we, we think about zoning, for example, you, most people would think you have a right to not let your neighbor paint their house pink, right? We should use zoning to, I don't like pink houses. There's this neighborhood aesthetic. Um, and so we should have a zoning law that says you can't paint your house pink. But I asked them, I said, well, what's the difference between that and McDonald's uh, not letting Burger King move next door, right? Uh, it's harming McDonald's. And they say, well, that's the, that's the essence of, you know, uh, business is every day you have to go out and compete for your customers. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be able to stop them from doing that. Well, my point of asking that is more to push back on zoning, but it is comforting to me that many students have that view, I think the correct view, that that marketplaces, you know, nothing's owed uh, the entrepreneur, and each day they have to go out and and uh, compete for profits. And, and Homer Law, I mean, Homer Law, he didn't have Linda Ronstadt on his side marketing uh, for him, and he didn't have a good capital equipment. Uh, Barney had a better truck, and presumably is more efficient as a result of that. So, I, I, I think one of the benefits, you've hit on one of the benefits of, of The Simpsons is there's lots of interpretations. And I think that's perfectly fine with economics is there's lots of different ways to read certain situations. It's all about talking about those situations from an economic point of view. And in the case of Mr. Plow. A lot of times when people see profits as this evil excess, they want to keep it down. If we kept Homer's profits down, it might not signal to get Barney into the market, which means we 
or Springfield would have a lot more snow-filled streets because there wouldn't be that incentive to enter the market. Well, you've, you've hit, well, you've hit exactly on my thing. Is I, there's no right, I think in many times in economics, uh, it's often hard in a big class to get at this, but there are no right answers. And here's a, or there's only trade-offs. And, and one of those is, let's think about something like regulated utilities. Okay, so clearly uh, water is, or let's, let's say if you go back to 1950, the phone company is a natural monopoly. It has economies of scale. It has uh, meaning, you know, uh, each additional user. Uh, it, it, I, if I'm a new entrant, I want to enter into the market because I see this huge profits this monopoly is having. Uh, my costs are going to be a lot higher than my competitors. Right, because they their 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 size allows them to price very cheap. Because in the case of the telephone company, they've set down the system of telephone lines where they can serve lots of people, and serving the next person doesn't cost too much. But for someone starting up, they need to get all of those huge initial startup costs. Exactly, and so in that case, we would normally say, well, like profits aren't serving their purpose because economies of scale are keeping out competitors. Right. That's the kind of standard argument for government regulation of monopolies. But even in that case, with natural monopolies, think about the long, long run. We have competition for phone. So the comp that we through cellular, right, or voice over Internet. The counterfactual that we'll never know is. Would we have gotten that faster if you had an unconstrained monopoly phone company? Did regulation, that is, did regulation by keeping prices low actually reduce the incentive to find technological solutions around the natural monopoly? I don't know. None of us, none, we cannot know that. But I think that's very analogous, except, except for the, the natural monopoly part, to the, the, if we try to keep Homer, say, okay, we only need one Homer, you know, one Plow King, or one Mr. Plow, uh, and, and regulate their prices, much like we do with taxi cabs in many, many small towns, right? Um, this, the same thing is true. We're, we're, reducing, we're, we're elim reducing incentives for new entrants to come in and find low-cost ways of providing this good and service. What other forms of media do you think would be beneficial to relate economics to? Obviously, The Simpsons is a big popular show. We recently had a guest on talking about the economics found in Harry Potter. We've had uh, an economics of Festivus episode showing the economics of gift giving uh, based on a Seinfeld holiday. Do you, do you see any other popular shows as useful in, in communicating these ideas? Well, certainly there are there are shows that have more economic content than, than others. It really depends on the the topic. I, I think South Park's a great example of one that has lots of economic content. That's not surprising. Matt Stone's dad was an econ professor at Metropolitan State College of Denver for many years. So it's not surprising that that show has a good sensibility about economics and policy. Parks and Recreation obviously has a lot to say about political economy and public choice 
uh, type of issues. Homer Economicus comes out, is it May 14th? Is that next Tuesday? Well, it is. You know, that that was the target date. It's actually out already. Uh, I've, I've, copies have already shipped uh, as, we're, as we're talking here. So uh, it's been out, I don't know, a couple of uh, days now, and uh, which was a pleasant surprise to see it show up on my door. You know, I've heard talk of uh, Business Week wanting to write about it. Uh, so my, my whole goal in... in Getting the book, and it's been a five-year process to try to get it to, to come out, was I was very intrigued by the success of The Simpsons and Philosophy, which came out in the 90s and sold 200,000 copies. Now, maybe some of those were given as gifts and they weren't read, but I think I learned some philosophy by reading that, and I just want some people to learn economics, you know? With this, this this attempt at trying to connect popular media to economics, do you have any future work you'd like to draw attention to? Do you have any plans to connect economics to, say, South Park or Parks and Rec? I, I do. Um, uh, you know, I, I think I know of several, I have several uh, friends and colleagues who use South Park, but I do think that that would be a logical next Kind of volume because uh, it's been on so long and there's so much material and, and I know a lot of people who use it. Parks and Rec, I think, as a as an article, I, I know I'm I like this type of work. I often organize sessions and conferences with people who are doing different different things. Uh, you know, uh, the journal that you you mentioned earlier, uh, Economics Harry Potter. One of the authors on that, uh, Marta uh, Podemska Miklutch. You know, she she published that in a journal that I edit. Uh, so, in uh, my suggestion, is submitted there. So, it's a. Um, I, I think it's an area that's ripe. And again, it's all about, in my from my viewpoint, it's all about reaching the people who would be interested in that topic for some other reason. I mean, my my hope is just like somebody who knew I was a Simpsons fan and bought me the Simpsons philosophy. People think, hey. My brother-in-law, he really likes the, uh, the Simpsons. I'll get them this book for Christmas. And that person takes something away from them that helps them at work or helps them at the ballot box. I look forward to seeing your work in the future. Josh, thank you for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Will. This episode of Upset Patterns was hosted by Will Compernell at Radio Free Jerome Studios in Austin, Texas. My guest today has been Josh Hall. Want more sources related to today's podcast? Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash upsetpatterns.